Let's turn in our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been turning here recently on Lord's Day mornings especially. And we come back to the subject of the whole armor of God that we find in Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. The passage goes at least through verse 18, but I'm just going to read verses 10 through 15 this morning. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, let's look to God in prayer once again as we come to the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you in particular for this part of your word that tells us about all the armor with which you have equipped your saints to fight the battle in which you have placed us the battle against the powers of darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, against the devil himself. Further equip us through the things we learned this morning as we consider once again this subject of the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. May we be better equipped fighters in this great war, and we ask this all in Jesus Christ, your Son's name. Amen. Amen. I'm just going to mention this, lest it become a distraction for you. I think I'm going to preach most of this message without my glasses. I almost always preach with my glasses. I, um, I don't know why it is, but in recent weeks, I've found I've been able to read my Bible in front of me and my notes better without my glasses than with them. I only got preaching glasses because some years ago I found I couldn't, and I keep enlarging the font of my notes. But for whatever reason, I don't think I've found the fountain of youth, but <clears throat> anyway, it's working for me right now. So that's what I'm going to do till it doesn't. I preached earlier on the piece of armor called the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. The word shoes is not actually used there, but a verb that goes along with the word shoes that means putting on shoes, 
There it is in my Bible, shod, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I preached earlier on that subject, and I said at that time that I believe Paul's main point is that if you have these shoes on your feet, it means basically you have believed the gospel, you have imbibed it, you've drunk it in, you are living in the light of the gospel, and you are deriving great practical benefits from it. And I said I think that's especially in keeping with some of the language of Paul that we have back in Romans chapter 5. Let's turn back there. I preached several messages on these first uh, verses of Romans 5, not that long ago. And I want to read the first five verses of Romans 5, just to refresh your memory about what I said about these shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul says, beginning at Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. In other words, if you're a Christian, Paul is saying here, God, through the gospel, has brought you into a saving relationship with himself. He has justified you, And that has given you peace in your soul. Verse 1, having been justified by faith, having all of our sins wiped out, having been given a righteous standing before God because of Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace enables you to rejoice, as Paul says, going on in this passage, even in the midst of tribulation in your life. And the reason you can rejoice in the midst of great tribulation is because you know that there are also many other blessings that come to you, that God has brought to you through tribulation. Just read verses 3 through 5 again. The point is, these shoes of the preparation of the gospel make us ready for anything. And I grouped the shoes in with the belt of truth. If we are harnessed by the truth of God's word, we can say they have the same effect, it has the same effect as the shoes of the preparation of the gospel, very similar to the shield of faith and to the helmet of salvation. So, Oh, I'm sorry, I said shield of faith. I meant the breastplate of righteousness. Those four things I grouped together and I preached, I don't know, two or three messages on that subject way back at the beginning. I also said back then in one of those messages that I expected to return to this subject of the shoes. In the basketball camp, which was the beginning of these messages I'm preaching in Ephesians 6, I only dealt with that first element. I didn't really think through it that much uh, to think about this second element. I, I had it in my mind. I wasn't convinced about it. But today, 
I want to add that another legitimate point that I believe we can make about these gospel shoes relates to the preaching of the gospel or the speaking of the gospel. It might be that whenever you've read that text, that's the main thing you've thought about. I don't think it's the main thing in the text, but the more I've thought about it, I think it's in the text. And so if, if, if you, you see what I'm saying here, what I'm saying is this. When we think of the gospel of peace, the first message I preached about it, or messages, focused on the work of the gospel or the effects of the gospel within your soul, within your life, if you are a believer. Now I'm saying it also has effects, and I think we can put this in this matter of the spiritual warfare we're fighting, it also has effects when it is spoken by you to someone else. So that's what we're going to focus on today. I say that with a bit of trembling because one of my favorite commentators, John Eady, who wrote a commentary on Ephesians and several other of Paul's epistles, wrote this on this point and this question of whether which emphasis is here in Paul's statement. He says, It is an error on the part of many expositors to represent the meaning thus, preparation to preach or publish the gospel of peace. In other words, he's saying what I just said is really not right. It's an error to focus on that. He says, for it is of defensive armor alone the apostle is now speaking. Well, in terms of making the point that I made in previous messages, I do agree with Edie that that point is there, and it's an important point about the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. But I'm also saying that I see this aspect or this function of the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace in that it can point to the preaching of the gospel. So I have two introductory points uh, as we continue here, two introductory points. And the first one is I just want to justify my understanding of it in this way, especially in light of what I told you about what John Eady says and made me feel bad. But I'm not going to go by my feelings. I'm going to go by what I think the Bible is saying. First of all, my, the first introductory point is I want to give a justification for my interpretation here and my application that I'm going to make today of this point of the shoes. I'm, I'm departing from John Eady, but I want to justify it for you. And the first point about this is this. One of my reasons for saying I think the preaching of the gospel is here in this point is that it's very possible that Paul borrowed the language gospel of peace from the Old Testament. Let's turn back to the main passage that would come into your mind on that subject, Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Isaiah 52, verse 7. There's another parallel passage, um, and it's Nahum 1 and verse 15. But we're just going to look at Isaiah 52 and verse 7. Just breaking into the context here of Isaiah's words, he writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, 
who brings good tiding, glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So here we have, uh, in, in this is of course Hebrew scriptures, but we have the statement of bringing good news, and when that's translated into Greek in what we call the Septuagint, the word there that is used throughout the New Testament for preaching the gospel is the word used, the word from, the word from which we get our English word evangelism or evangelize. And then, of course, there's the word peace, who proclaims peace. And then again, who brings glad tidings. And that, again, is the word for preaching the gospel. So there we have the verb for preaching the gospel used, along with the noun peace, who proclaims peace. Well, in Ephesians, you have the noun used, the gospel, related to that verb for preaching the gospel. And then, of course, the noun uh, peace. And Paul quotes that verse, Isaiah 52, 7, in Romans 10, 15. That's the place where he says, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear without a preacher? And then it talks about the preacher coming to preach. And it's a quote of Isaiah 52, 7, the gospel of peace. And so my point is, if this is what Paul did in Ephesians chapter 6, he quoted from Isaiah 52, 7, borrowed that language, gospel of peace. And it's all about the feet of those who bring good news. And that's exactly how he uses that language in, in Romans 10, 15. Then Paul was thinking about the preaching of the gospel, not just about our believing it. And so there's most likely, if that's true, a connection to the preaching of the gospel here as well. So that's the first thing I would say about justifying this interpretation. It's very possible Paul borrowed that language from Isaiah 52. The second thing is this. There's another place in the New Testament where I think it's clear that the gospel is a weapon in our warfare. And especially when we think of what we heard last time, we focused on, last week we focused morning and evening, I think it was, on the last part of verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Um, when you think of the preaching of the gospel, that fits in with the language of the sword of the Spirit. I think we could, would all say that. And here, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the sword of the Spirit, is not just talking about a defensive weapon, but also a weapon that definitely inflicts harm, in a sense, on the enemy. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Um, think about the illustration I used in those messages about Shammah, the son of Age in 2 Samuel chapter, I think it was chapter 23. He's the one who defended the lentil field against the Philistines, and he killed all the Philistines. It wasn't just a defensive weapon. It inflicted a lot of damage on the enemies. But the passage I had in mind in the New Testament where Paul uses uh, the gospel in this way, I believe, is 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. And here Paul is talking about 
Um, the fact that we are, again, in a spiritual battle, just like Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul talks about weapons to fight a war. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So there's the language of war. We're in a war. And then verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. So what are those weapons of our warfare? Well, they're certainly prayer, like we have in um, Ephesians 6, 18. All prayer. It's the last piece of armor that we'll look at. Another one, of course, is godly living, keeping from sin, keeping from the wiles of the devil as God's people. That's part of our armor, our weaponry that Paul refers to here. And then, of course, I think it's impossible not to include the preaching of the gospel in that. Notice especially as he goes down into, into verse 5, after he says, our weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If that doesn't happen in the preaching of the gospel, I don't know where it happens. And if the preaching of the gospel is not the weapon par excellence that Paul had in mind when he wrote this part of First, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, I don't know what he might have had in mind. So... I'm going to proceed then with this assumption that saying that the preaching of the gospel is part of the weaponry of the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace is probably something intended by Paul, at least, um, even if someone convinces me that Paul wasn't talking about this here, we'll, we'll be able to hear some good and biblical things this morning about the subject of the preaching of the gospel. But the second introductory point is this, that, again, it's, it's backing up what I said. Uh, Paul may have in view here more than just the fending off of spiritual powers when he talks about the preparation of the gospel of peace. I believe it's fair to say, first of all, that our use of the sword, or I'm going to use that as a um, uh, synonym here for the the preparation of the gospel of peace, in that the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the gospel of peace overlap at this point. But it's fair to say that when we use the sword, it can be redemptive. In other words, it's not just directed toward or against the powers of darkness. That's what our battle is especially against. But it can be directed to other people and especially toward unbelievers when we use that sword of truth, the sword of the Spirit, or when we preach the gospel of peace. Our passage focuses on the devil and other spiritual hosts of wickedness that we're fighting against. But our goal when we engage in this warf warfare, brethren, is not to ever fix or heal, or help the powers of darkness. 
With them, it is never redemptive. The devil will never be saved. The demonic hosts will never be saved. There's no record of such a thing in the, in the Bible. There's no directions about trying to accomplish such a thing in the Word of God. And in fact, we're told the end of all of them, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Our goal with them is never redemptive. We will never win them. But when we wield that sword, and when we use or proclaim that gospel of peace, peace with people, it can be different. They can be one. Like Jesus spoke about going and speaking the word of God to an individual who has sinned against you, Matthew 18, 15. And he says, if he hears you, when you confront him and speak the gospel one-on-one, -on -one, we could say with him, it said you can win him. Or you have the same thing where Paul talks about the way he approached his missionary labors. And he said that, when I'm among the Jews, this is 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 to 22. When I'm among the Jews, I conduct myself like a Jew as far as I can with a good conscience. Why? So that I might win the Jews. And when, when I'm with Gentiles, I conduct myself as a Gentile as far as I can with a good conscience. Why? So that I might win the Gentiles. I, do, I try to be all things to all men so that I might win all of them. So our sword, our use of the sword, or our preaching of the preparation of the gospel of peace is not just defensive, it can be redemptive. But also, let's think of it this way, the gospel can still have a condemning or a convicting effect, even if it doesn't have a saving effect on unbelievers. So turn with me back to Hosea chapter 6 and verse 5. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 5. It's an Old Testament passage, and it speaks about the preaching of the prophets. It's not about the preaching of Jesus or the apostles. It's not a New Testament passage, but I think it can be applied in this way, and you'll see that in other Text we look at as well. Hosea 6 and verse 5. Remember we're told that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I think they're the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, not the Old. But our faith is founded on the Old Testament as well as the New. And there were many Old Testament prophets. So God is saying here what he does, at least in part by the preaching of the prophets in the Old Testament. God says, therefore, I have hewn them. I have hewn them, that is, cut them down. By the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like light that goes forth. So in other words, it's saying part of the, the effect of the preaching of the gospel was to convict and condemn people who heard it, or the preaching of the, the Word of God in the Old Testament, without ever bringing them to repentance and saving them. In fact, think of Jesus' words in the New Testament where he quoted, when he was giving the explanation for why he spoke in parables, 
He quoted from the book of Isaiah. And he said, one of the reasons I, keep, I preach from Isaiah, I, excuse me, one of the reasons I speak constantly in parables is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah where it said that he would speak and the effect of it would be the people's ears would be made dull, even more dull than they already were, and their eyes would be blinded even more than they already were, and their hearts would be made harder than they already were. In other words, people were going to hear not just Isaiah's preaching, Jesus said, my preaching. And there will be a convicting and a condemning, but not a humbling and a saving impact. Sobering words, but it's what Jesus was saying. It's what God is saying here about the words of the prophets to so many of the people of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. Now, these next passages here are about Christ and the Judgment Day, but let's turn to Revelation, the book of Revelation, and just look at a couple of passages very briefly. They are pictures, word pictures, they're imagery, as we say. They have to do with Christ himself and what he's like, and they have to do with the Day of Judgment that's coming but the, the part of the picture that I want to focus upon, because it's similar to our text, is it talks about Christ and the sword of his mouth. Revelation 1, verse 16, to start. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. So it's a picture of Christ. And you might think, well, the sword should be in his hand. It doesn't say he had a sword in his hand. It said he had stars. He did have a sword, but it was coming out of his mouth. Now, what does that imply? There's an equation of his words that come out of his mouth with the sword. Kind of like Paul's idea, right? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you see it in Revelation 19 as well. Revelation 19. Let's read verse 15 and then verse 21. Speaking of Christ, you can read the context on your own. It's focusing on the last days, the last times. Now out of his mouth, here's Christ coming in judgment. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. My point is simply this. We should be thinking in terms of Christ's word having an impact on people, especially here it's unbelievers, and think of what the imagery there in verse 15. He will strike the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. That doesn't sound like gentleness and grace and rejoicing. And treading the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It's all about judgment. This is my point. We can think of the gospel being preached 
And it doesn't just have a saving impact, it can have a convicting and condemning impact without even bringing someone to salvation. We'll look at another passage that makes this even more abundantly clear in a couple minutes, but I'm saving it for a later part of what I have to say. So Paul may have in view here more than just the fending off of spiritual powers. He can have the saving of sinners in view, the preparation of the gospel of peace. But we have to be aware that that gospel has an impact, not just in saving people, but when the gospel is heard, it also convicts people, whether they realize it or not, whether they admit it or not, and then if they don't believe, condemns them, pronounces, pronounces judgment upon them. And then the third thing I want to note, it goes along with what I just said about that condemning and convicting effect. The gospel can have a preserving effect on sinners and the world around us. My passage here is Acts 5, 11 and 13. Acts 5, 11 and 13. This was the early days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven. The church was established in Jerusalem. The gospel was being preached by the people of God. The church was growing. Um, there were people who wanted to snuff out the church, the Jewish religious leaders. And we have this instance here of Ananias and Sapphira, the two people who came to the apostles, gave them this money, pretended that it was all the proceeds from the sale of a piece of land, but they were lying. And you know the story about how this Holy Spirit of God struck them dead because of their lie. But then on the heels of that, or in the wake of that instance, notice what it says in verse 11. After it recounts that thing, both Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. They were taken out. They were buried the dust was beginning to settle, we could say. Then it says in verse 11, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And then verse 13, I'll read verse 12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So they continued to preach the gospel. God enabled them to do miracles, confirming the gospel. You might think, who wouldn't believe that? Well, many people wouldn't. Many people wouldn't. There were some people, as it says in verse 11, who had fear, but it wasn't godly fear, and it wasn't fear that led to repentance. Great fear came upon all the church. That was sanctifying fear, but it also all upon all, that is all the others, who heard these things, even if they didn't believe. And then verse 13, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. In other words, there were a lot of people in Jerusalem who saw what happened, who got the message in a sense, this is a message from heaven. These apostles are men from heaven. These people in the church are clearly God's people. They don't want to join them but they got this much of the message, we're not going to mess with them. That's what I'm talking about. The gospel can have an, a preserving effect on sinners and on the world when we preach it. 
I think of it like Jesus' words in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You, that is believers, are the salt of the earth. You may not save everybody that you preach the gospel to, but your message may have a um, preserving effect. It may keep the world from putrefying more and more while you're around them. Just consider this. If you know the history of the world, you read the history of the world, you know something about the um, uh, demographics of the world, wherever the gospel has had the greatest success in the world, it has affected whole regions and nations of the world for good. Now, some of those places that I'm talking about include our country and and when, when, when things begin to go bad after such great blessings, it could go really, really bad. But my point is simply this. The gospel, when it comes in power and it's believed and God blesses it, it can have this effect of preserving people from sin, even if it doesn't save them. So I want to just make one observation or conclusion, if you will, from these points here in my introductory observations. And it would be this, especially that second observation. The gospel preached to the world and lived before the world always accomplishes something, even if it's not especially what we hope it will accomplish. So what, what do you hope the gospel will accomplish every time you speak it to an unbeliever? What do you hope the gospel will accomplish every time it's preached from this pulpit, and for that matter, from any pulpit it's ever preached in? What do you hope it will accomplish? You hope it will save sinners. You hope it will bring people to humble themselves before God and repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ and turn from their life of wickedness to serve Christ for the rest of their days. That's always our hope. My point is simply this. You know the language of Ephesians, not Ephesians, Hebrews 4 and verse 12 about the Word of God. That the Word of God is sharp like a sword. Think of the double-edged sword that goes out of Jesus' mouth as we read about in um, revelation well the bible says the word of god is living and, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart my point is it's always that it certainly is that when people hear the gospel and believe it but it's also always that, even if they don't. And I think the passage that especially emphasizes this point about the preaching of the gospel is 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 to 17. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 to 17. We're focusing on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace we're noticing how the preaching of the gospel 
is, I think, part of that piece of armor, if you will. We are prepared to preach the gospel as Christians. We should be ready to preach it, and we should preach it. And here's what we read about Paul and what he has to say about his own preaching of the gospel as an apostle and about his fellow apostles and apostolic laborers. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, For we, that is, we apostles, we preachers, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, that would be those who are, being, who are, are perishing, we are the aroma of death to death. And to the other, the aroma of life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? In other words, Paul's saying this is a very weighty task that's laid upon our shoulders. And then verse 17, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God or making merchandise of the work of God, word of God or simply trying to get rich by preaching the word of God. But we, but as of sincerity... But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. So Paul says, when we go around preaching, he says, if we're faithfully preaching the word, there's a sense in which every time we go out to preach, and as we preach, there's an aroma that wafts up toward heaven. And God breathes in that aroma. And God is pleased with it. He says, mmm, the fragrance of Christ. Christ is bring, being preached. Sinners are having Christ presented to them in the gospel. Sinners are being confronted with Christ through the gospel as Paul preaches it, as Silas preaches it, as Barnabas preaches it, as James and, and Peter and John preach it. That's the aroma of Christ every time they preach. That's what God smells, we could say, in heaven. And it's not just a sweet smell. Sometimes it's a more pungent smell. Sometimes it says in verse 16, it's the aroma of death to death. In other words, Paul is preaching and people aren't believing. Why is God still pleased with that? He's pleased with it because it's still the aroma of Christ. His son is being preached. Sinners are being confronted. It's not news to you, brethren, as Christians, that every sinner who's ever confronted with the gospel does not get saved. But as a sinner is confronted with the gospel and he doesn't believe it, and he keeps not believing it till the day he dies, I just ask this one question. Was God's purpose accomplished in that person's life? Not his saving purpose, but what he ordained from before the foundation of the world. It was. And God is pleased with that, in that sense. I know scripture says he takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but that's a different point. But then to others, it's the aroma of life unto life. That is that sweet and most pleasing aroma that comes. But you see the point I'm making here, and that is... When the gospel is preached before the world, before unbelievers, it always accomplishes something, one thing or another, 
And it's always the purpose of God. So I, make, I stop here to give encouragement to you as a believer about the preached word, the proclaimed word. You might be speaking it one-on-one. The preached word always does something. Sometimes you say, we preached and nothing happened. Nobody even asked us questions. We preached on the, the Morristown Green. Nobody came to church. Nobody fell on their knees and repented. Nobody ran up to us and said, what must I do to be saved? Nothing happened. Is that really a biblical perspective? This is what I'm asking. It's not. Not at all. The preached word always does something. Whenever the word is preached, I've said it this way in the past, there are always spiritual transactions going on. Either someone who God is going to draw to himself, even if he isn't converted on that day, is being brought maybe inch by inch closer to the day of his conversion and closer to Jesus Christ, whom he will one day bow before. Or... The person is being hardened. He's being convicted, but not converted. He's being condemned by the Word of God, even though it's good tidings, as we sang just before I stood up to preach. The gladly solemn sound, I can't remember if that was the exact wording, but that's the point I'm making. It's tidings of great joy, but it really is solemn if people don't believe it. Encouragement for believers, whenever the gospel is preached, however weakly, however apparently ineffectively, it always does something. It, it, it advances God's purposes in the earth. But then there's an admonition here as well. In the admonition, the warning is for unbelievers. Every time the gospel, it's the same point, but it's a warning to you. Every time the gospel is preached, it always does something. I'll state it this way for you, the negative way. The preached word never does nothing. It never does nothing. I remember many years sitting here in these pews, many years ago, sitting here in these pews. It was back when I was studying in the academy, so it was the 1980s. Yes, I was alive then. The 1980s. Pastor Martin preached this message, and I remember in his application, he was saying something. He said, there are many of you who have sat in these pews many, many times. Could be in the hundreds or even thousands of times. You've sat here, whether you're young or old. Maybe you're an unconverted spouse of some, someone in the church, and you come with your spouse just as a courtesy or something like that, or maybe you're a child or a young man or woman who's grown up in the church and you're not yet out from under your parents' roof. And when, when that day comes, you're thinking of bolting and you're never going to be seen in church again on Sunday because you won't have to be. But you think when you hear the gospel and you think, I'm not going to believe that stuff. I'm not going to be like my parents and try to live such a holy life and try to avoid this and that thing that they call sin, but I think would really be fun to engage in. And every Sunday goes by, and you make it through, and you're not a believer, and you think, there, I won again. I didn't bow the knee. I didn't bend to God and to His Word and to His Gospel. 
to that preacher, to my parents. I won again. Whenever the Word of God is preached, it never does nothing. And if it doesn't make you better, it makes you worse. If it doesn't make your heart soft to bring you to repentance, it makes your heart harder. That's a warning. But there's also an encouragement for you that whenever the gospel is preached, even to hardened sinners, even to sinners who have, you know, inside anyway, not outside, inwardly a snarl, I'm not going to listen to that stuff. It never does nothing. But even to someone like you, if that's your heart and your attitude of stubbornness and just saying, I'm going to just make myself like a brick wall to this preaching. And every time the gospel is preached, Jesus Christ is saying to you, come, come to me and I will forgive you. And I will give you joy and I will give you delight. And you can taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's my message to you. That if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ, as the gospel says, that is the gospel message. The gospel message is that Christ has hung on the cross in order to save sinners. That's the gospel message. It's that if you, hard as your heart may be, wicked as your life may be, if you will simply lay down your arms and stop fighting against Jesus Christ, you can experience what the gospel says about all things becoming new, about light shining in darkness, the darkness of your heart and your mind. You say, what darkness? What darkness? You don't understand this yet. I'm a Christian. I lived for the first 15 or so years of my life in darkness. I never got into drugs, never got into an immoral lifestyle, never killed people, never made it a habit of stealing things. I do remember stealing a piece of candy once from the store when I was eight years old. In other words, I did not have an outwardly wicked life. But when God opened my eyes, I came to understand I had a lot of sin in my life. I see more and more as every year of my life goes on. What I'm saying is you may not see your life that way. But what I'm just saying to you is this. If I have a lot of sin in my life, after God has washed me and given me the power of the Holy Spirit, and given me a heart to keep his commandments and do his will and walk in his way. What is your life like? What is your heart like? What is your mind like? I'm trying to help you see some light here. And acknowledge the fact that there are things in your life that you would not want people to know about. Things that go on in your heart and your mind, you would never want people to see or hear about. And things that for certain, you would not want to be brought into daylight before the whole rational universe on the day of judgment when Jesus Christ comes again. 
But that is going to happen someday. He will come and he will call every person before the judgment stand, you and me and everyone else who ever has lived and whoever will live. And as you can imagine, if you will just face that reality, how bad it's going to go for people who have all these pockets of darkness and wickedness in their hearts and in their lives, however successful they've been at concealing them from other people, they will not fare well in the day of judgment. And you say, but you said you have sin like that in your life still and in your past more so. What about you? I'll tell you what about me. The Bible says there are going to be some people in the day of judgment that when sinners are separated will not be on the left hand and be called goats and be sent away into outer darkness and everlasting condemnation and suffering, which the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. There are others who will be put on the right side and they will be called the sheep and they will be welcomed into everlasting glory with Jesus Christ. And the sole reason for that is this, that their sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ, who suffered for their sins when he died on the cross. And the point at which sinners enter in to that blessedness of forgiveness and a righteous standing is when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and come to saving faith in Him. When they turn away from their sins and repent and cast themselves upon Jesus, who is the only one in this world or in heaven above who can save anyone from sin. And that's what I urge you to do today. And my prayer is that the, perp the saving purpose of God will be accomplished in your life today when you come to know Jesus through faith in Him. So I'm going to stop there and leave the rest of what I have to say for another time. But let's pray that the Lord will bless His Word and accomplish His saving purposes today through it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you especially for Jesus Christ, your son, who laid down his life to save sinners like us. And we ask that you would come with great power, the power of the Holy Spirit today, and that you would bring the gospel mightily and that you would, would bring it to the hearts of every unbeliever here today. We ask that you would convict them that you would impress upon them how they stand condemned by your law, but even by your gospel, if they don't believed in, believe in Jesus, your Son. We ask that this day would be a day in which you open their eyes and shed light into their minds, and that you would even flood their souls with gospel light and bring them to saving faith in your Son. Hear our prayers and help us, your people as well, to derive great comfort and encouragement from the things we've heard about the preaching of your gospel today. In Jesus Christ, your son's name, amen.